So welcome to you all again, and welcome to the folks joining us on the live stream, including a very special occasion for today. One of our two presenters is joining us remotely. Um, so we're very excited that technology is enabling us to grow the digital dialogues um, physically, at least for today. Um, so um, we are still taking nominations for our spring digital dialogues. I've seen a lot of good ideas come into the forum lately. So please keep sharing your nominations. We're excited to bring another set of awesome folks to come and speak in the spring. And since this is our last uh, digital dialogue of the season, I wanted to give a special shout out to our um, folks who are helping us put on the live stream week in and week out from the RHU, um, the College Office of Technology. So big thanks to Nat, Alexa, Monica, and Jack for everything that they've done to support digital dialogues this semester. They've really helped us up our game and we couldn't do it without them. So thanks to them. All right. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our two speakers for today. Jessica Liu earned her PhD in communications and graduate certificate in women's studies from right here at the University of Maryland College Park, where she now serves as the associate director of design cultures and creativity in the Honors College. Trained as a rhetorical critic, she is concerned with how we can practice greater care for past, present, and future humans, especially those whose lives are shaped by precarity and state-sanctioned violence in the ways we use language to create design and destroy our worlds. She examines in particular the ideas and rhetorical practices that form, advance, and disrupt racist logics in public discourse in the United States. And her work is further positioned at the intersections of African American history, archives, and digital humanities, as she specializes in adapting the text encoding initiative, TEI standard of scholarly markup, to critically model, analyze, and amplify black people's practices of rhetorical invention and innovation. And joining us today, uh, from uh, the University of Michigan, Caitlin Pollock is the Digital Scholarship Specialist for the University of Michigan Library, where she works with students and faculty on digital scholarship workshops, projects, and initiatives. She holds a BA from Vassar College and received a Master of Science in Library and Information Science from Pratt Institute, and a Master of Arts in Digital Humanities from Loyola University of Chicago. Her research interests include Black Digital Humanities, Inclusive Humanities Data, Critical Race Feminist Data Practice, and African American Women's History, focusing on the black female activists of the late 19th century. It's my pleasure to introduce Jessica and Caitlin. Please help me welcome them to MIT. Thank you so much, Trevor. So Trevor did our introduction. So Caitlin and I don't really have to introduce ourselves too much, so thank you. Um, I'll just add, again, it's nice to meet all of you who I don't already know. My name is Jessica. Um, I'm currently the Associate Director of the Design, Cultures, and Creativity Program. I want to actually give a special shout out to one of my students who is in the back corner who you've already met, so that's Skylar. So thanks so much for being here, Skylar. Um, and thank you as well to all of, the, all of you who are joining us via live stream. Caitlin, do you want to do your little welcome as well? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic. And um, I thank you for the team at um, Yes, we definitely want to thank everyone for being here, taking the time out this busy time of the semester. And I, we do want to echo Trevor's um, notes of gratitude. So thank you to the MIST staff, also the facility staff here at Hornbake Library for preparing this space always as well. And we will definitely second the shout out to the RU Tech team. I've had the pleasure of working with the RU Tech team for several years now, and they are undefeated, and they are the best at their job. Um, so thank you so much for facilitating not only today's live stream, but also, of course, um, Caitlin's remote participation as well from Michigan. We also feel it's important to acknowledge that this land is being held on, um, this talk is being held on stolen land was, that was previously inhabited, protected, 
and cultivated by the Nkakshtank and Piscataway peoples. Um, and we further recognize that as of now, at least to the best of our knowledge and to the best of our internet sleuthing, um, the University of Maryland College Park has not issued any formal territory acknowledgement as an institution. We are so, have, oh sorry, go ahead, Caitlin. I also just want to acknowledge that the University of Michigan is on the ceded land of the Council of the Six Fires, which are the Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Poland. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, we're really happy to be here for this digital dialogue. It's an opportunity for us to actually share ongoing work that we have currently undertaken um, to engage TEI in ways that center black history, culture, and theorizing. Um, this is very much an in-progress project that we're inviting you all to hear about and offer feedback on, so we're really excited about that. Um, and we're currently referring to this as the Black DH Schema Project. So that's what we're kind of unpacking and talking about for the next, hopefully, 45 minutes or so. Um, so a little bit about TEI, just a background for those of you who are not familiar with TEI. Um, TEI has to be kind of be defined in several ways. I'm going to just slide Caitlin over for a second, right? Um, so first of all, TEI is a form of extensible markup language. As far as markup languages go, um, you're probably most familiar with HTML, but XML um, is another markup language, extremely flexible, can be used in a variety of different contexts. Um, providing for a wide range of structural, descriptive, and editorial tags and elements for encoding documents. Um, XML is particularly suited for text-based material, but is also um, used for a variety of other kinds of material as well. Um, it's also, oh, things I'm still on, Caitlin. Um, it's also an agreed upon standard of markup texts um, that, you can, that can be read and searched and utilized by multiple users and communities. So very much an interdisciplinary tool as well. Um, but for TEI, this is kind of a standard language that if you are using certain TEI tags and elements, they're hopefully going to be recognizable and legible across different fields, um, across different areas of study. And then finally, TEI is also used to actually refer, uh, refer to a group of people, an entire consortium of scholars and researchers who use this standard in their work. Um, so Raf is actually, uh, Raf and I are both members of the TEI consortium, as is Caitlin. Um, Raf is currently a member of the TEI Technical Council. I'm a member elect of the TEI Technical Council. Um, and so we are a part of this kind of very broad, dynamic, vibrant community that uses TEI, but also challenges TEI. So the TEI community is really good about calling attention to problems with the standard or areas in which the standard needs to grow. And when I first started using TEI, that was one of the most exciting things because as I started using it and learning more about it, I was like, I think I need it to do X and I think it needs to do a better job with why. And knowing that TEI is a community that is responsive and adaptive um, is a really exciting part of this work. Um, but for the purposes of this digital dialogue, our aim is not to teach you how to use TEI. This will not be a TEI workshop, so we're not, um, our goal is not to teach you how to encode documents or even talk in depth about how TEI can be used for a variety of different projects. Um, and we will not be walking away, you will not be walking away with like a tool that you can drop into your work tomorrow. Um, that is not our goal for this session. Um, our aim is actually to, we have kind of a twofold aim as we invite you into our process and our progress so far. Um, so the first is to actually kind of meditate on this notion of praxis over product, um, and in doing so, signal to a black feminist framework for digital humanities which is something that actually one of my mentors and colleagues and one of my close friends, Catherine Knight Steele, 
just talked about yesterday um, at the Digital Humanities Distinguished Lecture um, at Michigan State, I believe. Um, yes, at Michigan State University, right? Um, and then second is to explore what's possible when we approach TEI as a technology and as a tool from the perspectives of black digital humanities. Um, and that is to say kind of three things. Um, first, how does black culture, black history, and black life inform the way we disrupt and TEI in both as a standard and both in the practices of using TEI to encode text? How TEI reinscribes categories of humanity such that black life and black people are diminished, devalued, and often cast as data objects rather um, than being amplified and celebrated as fully human when they engage, participate in, or create text. And then finally, how TEI affords us an opportunity to both recognize histories and support futures of black innovation, invention, creativity, and play. Um, so these are the things we are thinking through. These are the things that are driving Caitlin and I's work as we develop this project. Um, so that's what we're inviting you into kind of consider along with us and then also to kind of hear your feedback and, as, and your insights on these points as well. Um, so before we kind of dive deeply into this talk then, we wanted to kind of trace out for you how each of us came to this work, because um, Caitlin and I come to this work from very different perspectives and very different backgrounds, and we feel like that is what makes our collaboration particularly strong. We're really um, bringing different perspectives to this work. Um, so for those of you who have met me previously in this space, particularly when I was um, working as a postdoc and then assistant director to Adhum One, right? So stage one of the Adhum initiative, which culminated earlier this year. Um, you have probably heard my TEI origin story before, so if you have, I apologize. You're going to get um, a little bit of that again today. Um, but as Trevor mentioned when you read my bio, my background is actually um, in rhetorical history and rhetorical criticism. So I received my PhD here in the communication department at Maryland, where I was trained quite well um, in understanding and unpacking kind of legacies of rhetorical arguments that animate black history and black culture. Um, so I was intensely trained in like understanding um, American public address um, and how certain arguments have played out across time and space within American culture and in American politics. Um, and my dissertation focused specifically on understanding and understanding definitions of freedom and black freedom as it pertained to former slaves in the moment immediately following um, emancipation, right? And so I was, um, in order to do that work, I was doing a lot of um, archival research. Um, so I spent a lot of my time um, digging into 19th century documents um, and transcribe. So those of you who've done archival research, you know all of, I'm looking at Stan, because I know that he does a lot of archival research. So you know that that means you're collecting a lot of documents, you're learning from archivists, right? Um, and you're doing a lot of transcription before you're doing any sort of interpretation, analysis, visualizations. Um, and as I was doing a lot of archival work to be able to understand the legacies of black rhetorical history, um, my attention turned to questions of what gets collected, what gets preserved, in what manner is it preserved and cataloged, how does it um, become accessible to others? Um, and so I started to care a lot about how archival research is enabled by other processes and other questions. Um, and then finally, when I started working on Adhum One in 2017, um, I was kind of introduced, that was my first real foray into black digital humanities. That was when I started um, getting to work with people here at MIF and making other connections on campus that kind of brought me out of my traditional public address training and comm. 
um, and took me a little bit away from rhetorical history and took me closer to more contemporary black digitality. Again, always in the context of the, that kind of historical legacy, um, but thinking more about how black rhetoric, um, black engagement plays out online and in digital spaces and how our engagement with tools and technology um, bring different questions to light, right? Um, so for me, TEI ended up kind of being this tool, this technology, this mode of engagement and analysis that was able to bring all three parts of kind of my scholarly journey together. I attended um, Humanities Intensive Learning and Teaching um, in 2017. That year was held in Austin, Texas. And Caitlin was my TEI instructor. So she taught a class called Introduction to TEI for Historical Documents. And it was the first time I was introduced to TEI um, as a tool for my research. So I was particularly interested in how I could use TEI to um, digitally model all of those archival documents I'd used for my dissertation, build a digital corpus, be able to analyze it differently, be able to share and circulate those materials to other scholars that might find them useful for their own work. Um, but then that's also the time I started realizing that TEI was this tool that could be critiqued and disrupted, again, particularly from the perspective of African-American history and culture. Um, so that's how I've come to this work. Um, that's how I got to meet Caitlin. And Caitlin, as well, wants to kind of share a little bit about her journey with you as well. Caitlin, can you hear us? Yeah, you can drive for me, so. Perfect. Got you.
um, full care and kindness in her work. And that's basically me. Thanks, Caitlin. So now that you both, uh, so now that you've heard how both of us have kind of arrived at this work, we want to kind of clearly define the scope of the project as we see it right now. So again, we're referring it to it right now as the Black GH Schema Project. Um, and we've defined the scope as an effort to reimagine both the users and the uses of TEI um, to move toward discovery, access, research, and preservation that centers black people, black lives, and black cultures rather than relegates black DH to the margins as an addendum to or a variation on text encoding, right? Um, so we've kind of landed on this definition based on a lot of the interactions we've already had within the TEI community um, from other experiences we've had teaching or working with TEI. Um, so it kind of captures our focus, but also as you can see, particularly from this last part, kind of captures something that we're noticing within um, black DH work in the TEI community um, that there is a certain kind of standard of best practices for how TEI is used. Um, and a lot of individual scholars develop workarounds to make it work for their own particular research. But a lot of times those workarounds are considered just that. Workarounds or deviations or additions um, to the standard rather than you know, just a way of using TEI right, as a norm, as a default. Um, and so we're trying to shift that. Um, so this project is really an attempt to figure out what's possible um, is it possible to develop a schema that moves us from, oh, black DH scholars don't really use TEI, um, to TEI is really helpful for black DH scholars, right? Can there be a schema that moves us from TEI isn't that great for black DH right now to TEI does support and encourage black DH work? Um, and finally, from, okay, TEI definitely replicates uh, racist hierarchy, structures, and data modeling to can TEI confirm and amplify black life and black humanity? So that's really at the core of what this project is attempting to do, is move and to make that shift. Um, and Caitlin's going to talk a little bit more then about our goals. Um, the Black Key Schema Project encourages a workflow that repeatedly brings the decoder to black theory, black culture, black history. Um, it presents black-centered encoding of texts rather than a deviation. So we will return um, in a little bit to the actual details of this schema project, um, what it actually currently includes, and how we're going about building it. But before we do that, we wanted to kind of pause and thank um, the scholars and the thinkers who have taught us so many lessons that are animating how we're even approaching this from the start. Um, so this is just a brief, like a really brief sample of some of the key frameworks and some of the key thinkers that we are indebted to. And we're just going to kind of, each of us will pause on a couple 
um, that are really at the forefront of our thinking right now. So I will pause on both black technophilia and revolutionary mothering, and I want to speak a little bit about how both of those are kind of informing this work for me personally. Um, so I'll start with revolutionary mothering, um, which is uh, refers to a volume of the same name from 2016, um, and that was edited by Alexis Pauline Gums, Achina Martins, and Maya Williams. Um, and this volume has become really important to me, like personally in my life, and then also like in my work. Um, and so I kind of want to speak to you a little bit about how that's shaping, because that might not be immediately intuitive, um, how a volume called Revolutionary Mothering would be informing TEI coding work. Um, so I'll say that I began to think differently about my work while I was working with the brilliant team running AdHume 1. Um, so those of you in this room probably know very intimately some of the members of AdHume 1. Um, and that was, like I said, the first phase of the AdHume initiative. And I was working particularly closely um, with doctors Catherine Knight-Steele and Javon Vickerstaff, two black women who provided such extraordinary models of work, but also just living. Um, and being around them every day really made me reflect on like, not only how I was like living my life, but also how I was going about doing my work. And I started to think much more deeply about how I was investing and sharing like my skills and my gifts and my energy and my time um, and how I was doing so in service of the communities that I care about. Um, I, especially as a non-black woman, right? So a lot of my work engages black history and culture and I myself is not a black person. Um, and there was a point at which my training, right, as a rhetorical historian, a rhetorical criticism just fell short. Um, and there was a point at which I felt like what I was trained to do was maybe not so helpful for the communities that I cared about, right? Um, so even though I had this kind of intellectual training to analyze and interpret black texts, like that maybe was not the best use of my time and energy, particularly for black communities. Um, and so this framework of revolutionary mothering really helped me make sense of that and helped me redirect my focus and my energy. Um, so radical mothering, um, has been defined in that volume in several ways. So as, quote, creating, nurturing, affirming, and supporting life. Um, as, quote, investing, investing in others' existence beyond, beyond biological determinism and dog-eat-dog -dog individualism. And, quote, the glad gifting of one's talents, ideas, intellect, and creativity to the universe without recompense. The imperative to build bridges that allow us to relate across barriers. Um, and for me, this was really helpful because it allowed me to reorient myself to my work as the possibility of um, helping to build bridges, right, rather than necessarily speaking on behalf of a community to which I do not belong, right? Um, so for me, this notion of building bridges, um, being a bridge as oneself, um, is about creating pathways. And the Black DH Schema Project, in, for me, is some ways, it's helpful for me to think of it as a bridge, right? Um, between lessons learned from black scholars and thinkers to TEI markup, uh, which is a pathway that in many circles doesn't currently exist, um, as a bridge between African-American studies and black studies to new communities of scholarship and practice, right? Um, so that's been um, an interesting metaphor for me and, and really kind of inspiring and kind of guiding this work. Um, and I think for me, a much more useful way to see myself as working for black communities. Um, rather than inserting myself or speaking on behalf of other people, right? Um, and the other framework I definitely want to amplify as well is black technophilia. Um, 
So I've learned about black technophilia from Anna Everett's seminal work in 2002 and 2009, but also from many other scholars who have been engaging her work as well. So again, Catherine Knight Steele um, engages black technophilia as a framework um, very often in her work, as does Andre Brock, Brandy Mock Payton, Sarah Florini. Um, and black technophilia is a framework for orientation towards black digitality um, that really amplifies how black and African American people are and always have been at the forefront of cyber culture and technological innovation, despite the prevalence of digital divide narratives that would often conflate lack of access with lack of skill. Right? Um, and so it's been really important to me to think about black technophilia as we go about this uh, schema project because it reminds me that first, TEI um, is a tool that can be used to amplify um, black innovation, particularly in text-based materials, to identify a name when linguistic innovation is happening right, in a black authored text. Um, to really shout out, again, all those different ways in, uh, in which black people can play, reimagine, and remix language. Um, and then it's also important that um, this framework reminds me that TEI is just like a tool like any other that is open to innovation. right? Um, so it's one of those tools that has all these affordances. Um, and black people and black DH has the ability to kind of enter into this tool and play with it and kind of disrupt it and make it something new and make it better. Um, so those of the many frameworks um, that we have learned from, those are the two right now that are really at the forefront of my mind. Um, in addition to some of these other ones that are also, of course, we could talk about for days, I'm sure. So if we have time during the Q&A, we can certainly revisit these. But I know Caitlin has a couple she wanted to um, spend some time on as well. Great. So um, I come to this framework as a mixed woman and someone who identifies as a red and white black woman. So I have to recognize the first black woman whose teachings and trainings inspired me. She's my mother, who is a classics professor, chair of the classics department at Hamilton College, and the first black woman president of the city's classical studies. And she was also taught me at a young age to look at everything critically and to include a critical race feminist view. Had a very interesting childhood. Um, but thinking about the writers and the thinkers who really inspired um, our framework, I'm going to start again with coming off of Jessica's Sadia Hartman book. Uh, quote or review of Christina Sharp in the wake that care is the antidote to violence and really thinking of care as a praxis. And this is all undergirded for me by Audrey Lord's two foundational essays, Ambassador's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, and the uses of the erotic, the erotic of power. Lord argues that the antithesis of white patriarchy is care, community, and the sharing of burdens and labor. We uh, see now in our current society a level of performative cruelty at a global level, at a national level, and even at a local level in our towns and at our institutions of higher ed. A Harris practice speaks to reverse the effects of cruelty and violence, and instead uplift and highlight voices and experiences previously silenced and marginalized. It is inclusive, respectful of boundaries and time. Feminist timekeeping is a real thing. Keep meeting on time. Care's practice, uh, care's practice encourages thoughtful and intentional experimentation and problem solving. Each experimentation is a thought process. Where is the care? Where is the care? Where is the harm? And where and when is the content? Pulling from Marissa Parham's process essay about her digital project, Top Break Dance, she writes that 
quote, coding in dot break dot dance is understood as an instrument of practice in heuristics for thinking about iPhone and other apps. On encoding and decoding, practices that were as important to surviving enslavement in Jim Crow as they are to navigating structures of increased state surveillance and the proliferation of digital technologies, end quote. Encoding, encoding and decoding as care is creating relations using elements and attributes for before they have been hidden, removing or disrupting a white gaze, turning that gaze back onto itself, which is inspired by Simone Brown, who is not on my slide. How to accomplish a care practice? That I will to at Adrian Marie Brown's emerging strategy, which is simply what it works about Jamie Butler. Emerging strategy focuses on critical connections. There is no failure, just lessons. Small changes can lead to larger changes. It's okay to start small. It's okay to do what is in your bandwidth. Each increment becomes a larger whole. Care as practice recognizes that each step, no matter the size, is a poultice to a wound. Emerging strategy allows us to practice this care for not only our work and our community, but also for ourselves. And then my second framework is material physicality. My understanding of class spatiality is heavily influenced by the work of Catherine Kitcher, especially her work in Monica Brown. And here, her theory of um, material physicality, which Kitcher developed with um, material physicality to describe the way the real world embodiments of the diaspora and how spaces are racialized and delineated by power and privilege. But, uh, uh, I started to apply her material physicality, but she uses to apply geography and cartography to sexuality. What spaces or sexual features are racialized in objects of power? For example, a work cited page relies on power and structure. Who do we authorize as having expertise in a field? Um, or what medium uh, carries authority? Madras or blog posts and tweets, for example. Power, we occupy our head. Work cited pages are overwhelmingly white and male. The contributions of white women and people of color pushed aside or marginalized. How does TEI uphold whiteness and sexual features? And how can it also be used to include other voices to inform and shape our theory and practice? Um, history and the experience of diaspora is not linear. It falls on top of stuff of case that are being poured into a pan. It maintains joy, activism, and pleasure along with these like, people of horrors and violence. So the media, the movement of bodies, sometimes voluntary, but often forced, it's often obscure. Does the black state see my ideas obfuscation? Does Kimberly Johnson's ex-words practice argues that with past and present in hand, you can visualize the crossings of bodies across space and time. Where these bodies and data sets may have been both undocumented and invisible, and they get into problems from the subcamp, haunt our digital works. How can we center these hauntings, create black centered communities within and outside the academy? Included communities without other Thanks, Caitlin. Um, so now that you get a sense for some of the frameworks um, that have been driving a lot of this work, it makes sense for actually us to follow that up by um, also exploring how those frameworks have led us to develop actually a statement of values for this project. Um, so that is one of the first things that we did um, when we began collaborating, is Caitlin and I decided that we needed to have a shared set of values for our work together and also kind of propose a statement of values for others who will be entering into this work later. So there are several piles of these around the room. So if you're on the live stream, um, these will appear on the slides in just a few minutes. But for those of you in the room, feel free to pass the copies around um, and kind of review those. I know it's a full front page 
um, is the statement of values, and on the back is a short statement of collaboration, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but like I said, this was one of the first things that Caitlin and I decided was vitally important as we began this work together, um, was thinking about what principles, what commitments um, we both wanted to kind of be on the same page about. Um, and again, to kind of propose to others who would later be engaging with the schema that we're creating. Um, so we'll give you just a minute to maybe briefly review before we'll highlight a few that um, we feel need particular attention. So if you've gotten a chance to review, you'll know it's quite a long list. Um, and actually, when we transferred onto the slides, that's when we realized we should provide a handout for those of us in the room, because we're like, this is like six slides. Um, so we're not going to click through all of them and touch on every single one at length. But like I said, we're going to kind of um, hit on a few um, that we feel just deserve particular attention. But I'll also note, when Caitlin and I tried to go through and just pick a few, we're like, oh, no, like all of them. We need to talk about all of them. Um, so again, maybe during Q&A, we can talk about more um, that maybe stand out to you. Um, but for now, we'll just, like I said, highlight a few. Um, so one of the ones uh, that we just think really, really need to highlight, and it's the first one, and there was a reason why it was the first one, um, was that the first value statement we committed to and that we hope other people who will use this work will commit to is that, quote, I recognize, uphold, and defend the intrinsic worth of all black Af and African American people and their lives. Um, and the reason why this is number one is because this is not necessarily a commitment that people using TEI would be like, right off the bat, this is why I want to use TEI, right? Um, but for us, this is the driving force of this entire project, was that as we use TEI, we see so many instances in which black people's humanity is just not a consideration when using this tool, right? And for us, that was why we wanted to um, work on developing this schema. Um, because like when I showed up at um, Hilt to learn TEI, like I was like, let me learn a new tool for my research. Um, so people could be coming to this schema for a variety of reasons, and we wanted the first thing that they kind of see and hopefully commit to, to be like, all right, I'm gonna learn this tool and technology, but I'm gonna do so with black people, black life, black culture at the forefront of everything that I do with it, right? Um, another one that we think is really important, of course, to emphasize is I reject white supremacist hierarchies that prioritize or normalize white people's modes of writing, thinking, theorizing, arguing, and producing. And again, this is because in many ways, TEI, in terms of its hierarchy and structure, kind of has this white supremacist hierarchy just built right into it, right? Um, even the fact that, I mean, TEI is in English, right? And of course, it is being adapted and used for other languages, but even something as simple as um, a very standard practice in TEI is if you have a main title and a subtitle and you're encoding like a manuscript, the main title is the English one and the subtitle is the original language one, when very easily it should probably be reversed, right? That the main title should be the original language title with the English title being the subtitle, right? Um, and so we want to make sure that this was also a prominent value that made its way into our value statement. Um, another one, um, I humbly embrace ongoing education and revisiting my assumptions in order to continue growing in knowledge and nuanced understanding. 
Part of this is just making very clear that both Caitlin and I do not consider ourselves the end-all be-all experts or um, the like end producers of the black DH schema for TEI. This is something we're working on developing and collaborating on, but we are constantly learning and Caitlin will talk more about the iterative design process um, that's involved in this project. Um, but we are constantly learning and we also know that the TEI community will also be open to critiquing us, challenging us, pushing us to do better and to continue growing this project in significant ways. Um, another one being I actively wield my power and privilege to create and hold space for black and African Americans. Um, this is one that we just feel is an important value in pretty much all contexts at this point, right? But in particularly doing this work um, so particularly with my role in it as a non-black person, right, making sure that Caitlin is on board even today with the digital dialogue um, and myth being accommodating and allowing Caitlin to Skype in and be part of this presentation because it simply wouldn't be right for me to be presenting on this work without her, right? Um, and part of it is related to that value that we've committed to. Um, and then finally, the last one that we just want to call out especially is I engage and produce work that aims to cultivate joy, freedom, power, and pleasure in black and African American communities. So much of the scholarship um, relating to black communities comes from a place of despair and sadness and violence and death. Um, and we want to make sure that in this work, we are both committed um, to maybe coming at it from a different angle, right? That there is so much of that in the records and in the primary materials that do get encoded, but there's also so much potential for joy and for freedom and power and play, um, and we want that to also be central in the work. Um, and the last thing we'll touch on before we move into the specifics of the schema itself is the statement of collaboration that was also offered. This was step two. So after the values, we moved on to deciding how we would collaborate together as partners in this project. So that's on the back of the handout for those of us who are in the room. Um, and Kayla and I will both address these. Um, these are some of the standards that we set um, and committed to in working together. So first, um, in collaborating, we have committed to distributing our labor with transparency and equity with particular regard for what each of us is good at and cares about, right? Um, so Caitlin is very much, in this pair, the technical expert. She's been doing TEI for much longer than I have. She's the one who taught me TEI two years ago, right? Um, and she also has the background in black history and culture, but that's also where my background is, black history and culture, right? So when we go about doing this project, we very much being clear with each other about kind of where our strengths are um, and how we divide and delegate our duties um, based on those strengths and our interests. Um, we also work together to promote, present, and circulate our work with full credit and recognition for all contributors in their respective roles. Um, as of right now, it's mainly Caitlin and I, right? But who knows who will be coming into this project? And we also think it's important, like even when we start our talk today, of course, to be recognizing other people who have made this work possible, whether it's the SAP here at MIT, the RQ Tech team, the facilities team here at Corn Bake Library and University of Maryland. All of these people have roles to play in our work, and we've committed to making that clear um, throughout our collaboration. And then another one that um, Caitlin also just touched on when she was discussing her frameworks, and particularly feminist timekeeping, is making sure we work together to help one another protect, guard, and like reclaim our time. Um, so we, um, so she's in Michigan, I'm here. We meet usually bi-weekly on Wednesdays, late mornings, when we have conference calls together. Um, but both of us are very like, it's not happening today, right? Um, if need be. Um, and even in the time when we're apart and not meeting remotely, when we divide up the, the labor and we're kind of working independently on the different tasks, 
we are very mindful about not like pestering each other about each other's pace um, or bugging each other about like why didn't you get that thing done that you said you would get done by Friday because both of us are in um, positions in our lives and on our work we are, we are juggling quite a bit. And Caitlin can speak more to her particular situation if she'd like to, but I'm in a contingent um, faculty position here at the University of Maryland. I carry quite a bit of emotional labor in my um, role over in DCC. Um, and so there's so much of my labor that is like often invisible from certain perspectives. And so since both of us are juggling so much um, as women of color, we have made a commitment that our collaboration is going to be really mindful of how we invest our time. Thanks, Jessica. Um, so yes, um, personally, like I, I just started here at the University of Michigan like four months ago, so I'm still learning my way around campus. This campus is really big. It's the biggest school I worked at. Um, it's the biggest campus I worked at. Previously, I was at IUT or I was just in and out campus a lot, being at a university, which is kind of like you're learning a new system, um, you're learning a, a new role. Um, a very large library, the largest one I've ever worked in. And so it's been um, really helpful to have a flexible collaborator and one in which we consider each other's self-care and mental and emotional well-being in meetings, um, in rescheduling meetings, all of that. And so um, part of our collaboration is also considering novel means and methods that would be colonial experimentation um, and so that's the idea of, I think experimentation can have a really nasty um, connotation, especially within Black DH, given the scientific racism, especially with segregation. And so rethinking what experimentation is, it's critical, it's, in, um, it's intentional, and how can we make sure that we put those methods when we experiment, and we experiment with purpose, not just, you know, for fun. And then also facilitate and show care for ourselves, as I just said. We worry about one another, we care for one another, we also care for our work and the subjects of our work. And also thinking about accessibility, thinking about environmentalism, how can we um, really think about everyone holistically? And then again, cultivate, um, cultivating like the farming work in our joy in our work in our communities. So, so I think maybe I'm in the door. And I think it's fun to think of new tags that can enhance um, instances in sexuality, how we can create and innovate and problem solve. Um, so we appreciate you kind of um, your time and attention as we traced out some of these frameworks, these values, and the commitments. Because like I said, this has been a lot of the work of the project. And I think um, this digital dialogue giving us the opportunity to reflect on these is really important because I think by the time we are like done, right, which is the wrong word because I don't think we'll ever be done, but um, by the time we've like created this like tangible or very discrete thing um, with the Black DH Schema Project, it might not be immediately obvious that this kind of thoughtfulness and care went into um, this collaboration. And so again, kind of meditating on praxis over product, there's a lot more that matters here than the schemas we're going to be able to kind of put forth into the world when we're all finished. Um, a lot of this has been about how we are very, moving about very purposely and intentionally in trying to get to this end product that other people are going to be able to kind of use, right? Um, a lot of what we are learning is just happening in this development, right? Um, and so now we're going to kind of return to some of, now we're going to get into some of the details in actually the development of the Black TH Schema Project. Um, so Caitlin is going to kind of walk you through 
our workflow um, and get into some more of the nitty gritty about TEI, what it means to build a DEI, uh, TEI schema, and then of course what it means to build a black DH TEI schema. Um, so we just wanted to go over a few key terms in case people aren't um, conversant in XML or TEI, and just to help with this kind of nitty gritty talk. The first one is an attribute. Um, it's used to describe XML um, elements, which we'll get to next, or convey extra information about an element. I like to think of it as an adjective or an element. It gives um, more context, more information, just like an adjective gives about a noun. Uh, and then, of course, elements are really the building blocks for XML. They act as containers for text, for media, attributes, and sometimes these um, other elements. Uh, you can kind of see them as like the, the bricks of a building. Or, and then uh, within TEI, you have modules, which are kind of like conceptual groupings of uh, elements. And similar to kits, these modules contain the elements, attributes, and the respective classes, which is, are also groupings by concepts and actions. Um, so my library in Brain allows us to kind of um, subject catalog, cataloging, so kind of grouping um, text or books by their subject material instead of um, shelving them by alphabetical, um, or you know if you're on Instagram, shelving them by color. So like uh, a module is really similar to subject cataloging for any of the um, libraries in the room. And the next one is the ODD, uh, one document does it all. If you go look at TEI kind of official guidelines or the TEI rookie, you will often find this described as a master source. I reject that wording. And instead, I call it a foundational document. Um, and it's one that contains descriptive prose, examples of usage, and formal declarations of TEI elements and attributes. It uses kind of a more um, uh, less Cody uh, code, um, and it's supposed to be uh, your documentation, your schemas, and also your examples all in one document. One document does it all. And then, of course, a schema. What is a schema? So, the, the definition of a schema, if you've ever taken XML programming, is it describes an XML document which tells you nothing. Um, so, I like to think of it, and I teach it as the blueprint of the XML document. If the elements are the building blocks, then the schema tells you where and when you can use certain elements, certain buildings. And moving on, really quickly, this is our workflow. Um, so it starts with conversations and experimentation. So it's conversations currently with Jessica and I, introducing with our experience of what we've been missing. In TEI, we've done kind of text either about or by black folks. And it's also experimentation. So it's us doing encoding of documents we've never encoded before, types of documents we've never encoded before, and see again, what, what, what would we want to see? What is it there? And those two things come together, and as we kind of develop tags and double check the TEI guidelines to make sure something else is already presented, but build that, we add it to our OGD. And this is truly an iterative process that goes back and forth, right? And then from the OGD, we can output specific schemas for poetry, for hip hop, for tweets, and have schemas perfectly designed for each of those mediums or media. Um, and again, flows back and forth. So the idea is that we can offer both schemas and an OGD, and 
folks who take the ODB and again customize even further and create a schema just for their project and addresses their needs. The ideas of the diaspora is so large and so nonlinear and so geographically uh, uh, spread throughout the world that we don't want to try to accommodate for everything. I don't think we could. The idea is to create this thing as flexible as possible to adhere to our values. And so then this is just a really quick general overview of how customization and expanding works in TEI generally. So you have your TEI module, and within that there are model classes which tell you how elements can behave and act. Right? So for example, we've chosen three model classes that have been circled. And then within there we have the TEI module elements, and you have um, the TEI model attributes. And so we are designing elements that will be attached to that model, that module, and then we're attaching attributes to those elements, and then we're adhering them to model classes. Um, so that's the easiest way I could explain this. Um, <laughs> but the, the idea is that you create an element that you created, and you can attach it to a module, and then declare how it's going to act and behave within your XML document. And then to see specifically, um, let me just look down my notes a little bit. Right. So the idea is this is how it would work for the Black DH. And just really quickly, um, TEI was designed to be customized, remixed, and reimagined. This is done by deletion, positions, faceting, setting behaviors. Um, so the idea is that you can delete things and kind of remove noise over something made. And the additions that you, as you can see here in the gray circle are creating your own elements to local needs and discipline needs. And the attributes like setting facets for shade to our elements. So our first example that we've come up with so far is a land acknowledgement, which be an alternative to a pub place or a place name for acknowledging, um, for, uh, for accounting for original place names, as well as their indigenous inhabitants and other dwellers. Um, we decided to split the indigenous habits versus other dwellers. So this could also represent gentrification and the moving of black bodies out of spaces. And so then the third one is chosen names. So something that Jessica and I both grapple with, I mean, individually in our own work, is what do you do when you have um, black folks in text who are unnamed, who are maybe referred to as property, or referred to as names they did not choose, they did not have the power to choose, and have documented. So the idea is creating some sort of tag, or some sort of element that would encapsulate kind of chosen names or at least represents um, undocumented chosen names. And then the third one is a supplementary tag to help identify the black thinkers or the black intellectual theorists who um, supported your work. And I think of this one as the site black women um, element, even though this element would be used for black folks all along the gender spectrum, in that because black women um, don't have the same citation rates as white men. And so that's what we're really trying to do is bring um, balance or, or bring that power back to a citation, but it's like the politics, right? Um, and so uh, the thought is identifying black scholarship thought, theorists, theory, as central to the market recreation of the digital edition. So the three examples Caitlin just talked about, cite black women, um, chosen names, land acknowledgement, Again, going back to that iterative design process that Caitlin mentioned, these are things that we already are, know are needed in a black TH schema based on 
text we've already tried to encode, text some of our colleagues and other friends have tried to encode. Um, and these are just the three of the ones we know immediately off the bat um, need to be created, right, and worked with and brought into um, a standard schema. Um, but there's also others as well that we are working on, right? Um, so, so in addition to a land acknowledgement tag or tag set um, for PubPlace, we are also thinking about how we need an alternate um, or addition to PubPlace that counts for digital spaces as black places. So when I was working with students in the FIRE program, they were encoding a lot of digital text, right? And also a lot of tweets. And PubPlace is normally used to actually indicate a geographic location for like an academic press when you're working with a printed volume or printed book, right? And so they're like, are we allowed to just put Twitter in there? Or do we add the ref as a, um, as a URL? But like that doesn't really represent the fact that like black Twitter is a place. It's a place of gathering. It's a place of community. Again, we've learned that from other scholars and thinkers, right? Um, and so we want to actually have a schema that has some sort of place tag that accounts for digital space as black place. Um, another one is we are working on developing tags um, to identify universities and other knowledge centers in particular that are historically have been or are currently still invested in maintaining slavery, slavery and prisons. Um, so again, that might be in conjunction with the publisher tag because that's often when you might identify a university press. Right? Um, so particularly when a knowledge center is one that is profiting from or still investing in slavery, we think it's important to call that to light. Um, we're also thinking about actually in the body of texts, developing editorial tags that account for code switching and signifying in black language practices. Um, also kind of connected to the pub place, um, digital place work, thinking about supplements to place name tags that address um, sites of cultural and community gathering that are not at all specific geographic locations, but are very much places in black culture. So whether that's the kitchen table, the corner, the barbershop, um, or like very regional or city specific place references, again, that you can't necessarily tie to a geographic point or set of coordinates on a map. And finally, we're also working on developing tag sets or a taxonomy to account for um, the complexities of black kinship and family, um, current tags do things with like role names um, or even like purse names. So when you're providing a person's name, there's often a place for a purse name, their first name, and their personal name, their surname. And that's very complicated, right? Again, getting back to those complexities of um, black people's chosen names, names that were imposed upon them, um, or when they are left unnamed in a text. So this hopefully gets, gives you an idea of the tags that we're currently developing. Um, and again, that this is all becoming, this is all coming on kind of an iterative design process and we're constantly discovering more as we think about all the different schemas that might be needed to be working with black text, whether it's hip hop, poetry, literature, correspondence, ledgers, tweets, etc. And so just to close, it was funny, when we were finishing our slide deck, Caitlin and I were both just like, we never know how to close like a slide deck. We're like, what do we put here? Like a quote or like a question. Um, but it seems kind of apt in this particular moment because we're like very much not done. This work is in no way finished. We're very in progress. Um, so we just thank you for listening and for your time and attention. Again, it's such a busy time in the semester um, for allowing us to create and hold this space to share our work with you. Um, and we certainly welcome any of your feedbacks, your critiques, and any of your insights as well. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. Um, the floor is open for questions and discussion, and very helpfully, on the last slide, they have left us a kind of key of important points. Key so. terms. 
Yeah. Thank you so much. This is such important work. Uh, I have a practical question, yeah. uh, which is, what are your plans for, say, making the art available and sort of work publicly so that others can contribute or annotate, etc. So I'll just um, answer kind of broadly and then I'll let Caitlin jump in. Um, so one of the things um, that's been really helpful for us as we've like planned ahead and like envisioned this project is the Epidocs project um, and how they have, so um, if we, I could bring it up now or we could kind of Google Epidocs and it'll be the first hit that comes up, um, has been a project very similar to this one that has inspired us in many ways. Like we are not the first to kind of develop schemas for a certain kind of text um, and for certain uh, communities of scholarship. Um, so I think that is something we're kind of aiming for as kind of an inspiration and a model. Um, in current process, we wanted to make things immediately available, available via GitHub, and we were working on GitHub, but given um, the recent um, news that GitHub is formally working with ICE, um, we have backed off of GitHub for now. Um, so Caitlin can talk more um, if she'd like to, but as of right now, we are kind of working just closely with one another, and it's not publicly available because we kind of hit that barrier for a second, um, but I do know in terms of our long-term plans, we're envisioning a project like Epidoc that is very public um, and will also allow for additional collaboration as well. Caitlin, do you want to add? Yeah, um, Epidoc, they're great. They, uh, we're definitely using their workflow, the ODT, and the individual schemas. And for those of you who don't know, Epidoc is from the field that I can't say without myself starting to coming in. Um, Photography, which is like the study of like things on stone, like non kind of like paper documents. So like things on buildings, um, words on buildings, yes. Um, which I didn't really know was a field until I pulled up on speed up. Um, so uh, we're really modeling their, their workflow at the very least. and thinking through their delivery as well using SourceForge or finding some other um, Platform we have with GitLab, but also GitLab's policies around working with agencies and organizations like ICE is super big as well. Um, so yeah, it's just rethinking through those platform options. Sorry, those platform options and trying to think of the ones that both honor, both most honor our work. Sorry, no, I'll try to answer the question correctly because I couldn't hear Raph at all. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the way they need you to relay the question. Okay, perfect. I, wish, I don't even know where I am right now. So. <laughs> yes, Trevor. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit more on that sort of rhetorical training that you talked about in thinking about the different parts of the text that TI sort of encourages you to unpack, mm -hmm. right? Like the encoding and also the presentation, which, you know, other forms of written text we often encounter in a kind of, you know, we don't think of typography and page layout or radio performance or whatever as clearly as a medium as we sometimes think of TI. So I wonder if you could think about maybe some aspects of your sort of ways of doing rhetorical analysis that help you sort of pick apart what pieces of a document might be doing, what kinds of work? Sure. Um, so it's funny because I think some parts of TEI, would, as far as like having such a clear structure um, and encouraging like a very structural reading of a text, makes sense for some rhetorical scholars who pay particular attention to rhetorical form. I was never one of those scholars. 
So I was never, like when I was being trained in rhetoric, like I was did not care much about rhetorical form. I did not care about genre. Um, and so these were things, like I cared, cared about like the nuances of an argument, how um, seemingly like very clear ideas or terms um, were defined because they were never very clearly defined, right? Like freedom. Um, and so because I read rhetoric in that way, as far as like all the different layers of the argument, I think when I came into TEI, that's why I immediately was like, this is a strange thing um, because I loved it so much um, for what it could do for my work as far as building a digital corpus, right? Um, for being able to actually catalog all my metadata, um, for all my archival research. But when I got to like the body section of the document, I started to mark up, I was like, there's so much that I can't mark up. Like I could, I need to spend a lot more time learning TEI. Um, I realize that now, but I was also like, there's so much of what my rhetorical brain is seeing here in the language that TEI doesn't immediately allow me to mark up or identify and play with, right? Um, so I think because, uh, and that's why like we, Kayla and I very much started with like tags and elements in the TEI header, but like it's very, it's like a very quick jump now for us to move into the body because being trained in rhetorical history means I care a lot about um, what is not actually in the text right, at all, right? So, so much about TEI is like encoding what is there in the text. That was one of the first things that Caitlin talked about when we taught, when she taught that TEI class that I first took was that you encode what is in the witness, right? Um, that is standard like TEI practice, that what is there in the original document, um, you model it, you create a surrogate off of what is like just originally there. And when I read a text because of my rhetorical training, I like read a speech, but everything I'm reading is coming from other speeches, other letters, other pieces of African-American rhetorical history. So it was like, all right, I need TEI basically to just add a bunch of stuff, not to encode what currently exists in this text, right? So I was like, all right, like add here, additional note here, point out to that thing there. And I was like, I don't think I'm using TEI right, right? Um, so I think that was the most jarring thing about bringing my rhetorical background into TEI is that like instead of reading and coding the document, it was like you, um, encoding the document to point out to everything else that needed to be read or to be understood. So I don't know if that gets immediately at your question, but it did like fundamentally like change how I read a text because all of a sudden I was paying attention to form and structure and editorial marks and everything like that. But then it also like made me reflect on how I do read documents just very differently based on the fact that I was trained to see long legacies of rhetorical and argumentative history and not a text as like a discrete thing unto itself. Um, I'm sorry, what was Trevor's question? Oh, sorry. Um, Trevor, can you, can I do this in a really concise way? I, I don't want to misrepresent your question now. Go ahead. Um, so Trevor asked how like specifically my training in rhetorical history and rhetorical criticism um, enters into this work at CI as far as how I read and encode a document. Is that a fair summary? Okay. Yes, go ahead. Um, so this is a great project, but something that I'm still a little fuzzy on is um, like, like you mentioned like current like TI framework, right? Mm -hmm. um, it like discriminates against flags by, by representing them as data. If you could talk a little bit more about, like, um, I guess exactly, like, like why that is a problem, right? Because for me, as somebody with a more technical background, right, like, it's kind of hard to like, I guess, parse where that like emotion comes from, right? Mm -hmm. 
Sure, and that's actually a very common question and not at all, like, um, especially when we bring this work into other TEI communities, that's a very common question. Again, and that's why our statement of values was so important is because a lot of people using TEI are not necessarily bringing, like you said, kind of like that emotive component, um, like an ethical or even like political component to the work. It's very straightforward, technical. You encode the document, you break it down into its very various um, elements of structure and the hierarchies of those structures. So when a name appears, you just put a tag around it says that's a name, right? When a place appears, you're like, put a tag around it says that's a place. Um, but when you're working with particularly African-American documents, it is not always straightforward and simple, and even it appears such um, within the context of black history and black culture. Um, so one of the examples Caitlin and I talked about is a lot of times in, a black um, in black text or white author texts about black people, they will reference black people, but not as people, right? So historically as slaves, as objects, as property, um, and if we just go about being like, okay, that's, I mean, in this text, they don't recognize black people as black people, like that's a serious ethical conundrum because that's not something Caitlin and I are willing to repeat or replicate, right? Um, so Caitlin can talk about this specifically with her work encoding the red record. Um, so Ida B's Wells work, because this is something she encounters and she cares intimately about as far as the datification of black bodies and black people. So I'll let Caitlin talk a little bit more. I'm sorry, you don't have to do this. Oh, sorry. Sure. So um, Skylar asked about um, the datification that happens, right, and what is like ethically problematic about that in TEI. Um, when you're just using TEI tags, um, what is problematic to actually, like he's, um, from our presentation, we talked about datifying, right, um, black life or black people. Uh, so I, again, to this idea of people, I would to Captain Kitchen's article, Mathematics of Black Lives, um, and really thinking about the ways that categorizing, counting um, can really just recreate black violence. And I described this with, um, when I encoded a red record, which is a text about black people by a black woman. And even there, I found myself stuck or even trapped because in her tabulation, the most prevalent or the number one name that appears as unnamed Negro. And I couldn't figure out a way to make each um, unnamed victim their own kind of uh, in their own kind of special unique identifier without upholding some sort of um, uh, white supremacist framework that made me feel really uncomfortable. So for example, um, John Doe actually comes from the English um, legal tradition, and so when people couldn't appear in court, John Doe would stand for them. Well, that made me feel gross because most of the lynching victims were victims of state-sanctioned violence, but there was no due process. So to bring it to my John Doe made me feel really uncomfortable. It also made me feel really uncomfortable to forever in the digital medium attach a lynching victim to a the day they died, the way they died, and then the alleged crime that they were accused of, again, with no due process. And so I found myself just leaving it and not giving them unique identifiers, which still to this day makes me extremely itchy and uncomfortable. Um, but so the idea of identifying the black body, how do we remove nuance and how do we smooth out facets and how do we remove humanity when we turn bodies into data is really the question I came out of encoding um, our life record? That's a really good question, though, Skylar, and that's something we can talk a lot more about. 
just TEI technical users from being like, okay, oh, cool, like I didn't think about that. That's cool to think about. Maybe I wanna like use one of these schemas for something and think through it, right? But I don't think that is our primary audience, right? Um, so I think our primary audience that we're really designing for, again, kind of going back to earlier in the talk, we're trying to shift that conversation from like black GH scholars don't really use TEI yet or like much at all to like TEI is, is great for black DH work. Like we're trying to create a schema where that is just possible to say that so that black DH scholars and black scholars when they encounter TEI don't have to already like do a lot of as much of this unpacking work. Right? Again, we can't stop other technical TEI users from coming across it and maybe wanting to learn more and like, that's great, right? But I don't think that's who we're really designing for. We're really designing for, again, to kind of create that pathway to facilitate black DH work and black scholarship that uses TEI and sees TEI as a viable tool that actually resonates with their work. Um, yeah, at least that, I think that has been our aim because that is something that Caitlin and I both have wanted for a really long time. Um, and we want the TEI community to start looking different, right? Um, and TEI work to also maybe be looking different as well. So if this is our contribution to that potential pathway, like that would be ideal. Does that answer your yeah. question? That's probably a good place to leave it. Um, let's thank Caitlin and Jessica one more time. <laughs>